Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, today's show I had Keaton Kirkwood back on. Keaton's super knowledgeable mortgage broker. He's with Kirkwood and Brennan Mortgage Group. We start off the show by talking about the current Alberta market and what's going on, some of the craziness that we're seeing. And then we dive into part one of the Smith Maneuver. What's amazing is even with this long form content, there just never seems to be enough time to cover everything. In part two, we're going to actually dive into uh, the accelerators. So the Smith Maneuver has what's called accelerators. There's four or five of them. And I'm going to hit Keaton with a bunch of questions and we'll just cover that in more detail. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Keaton. Well, welcome back to the show. I'm excited to have you back on. And this time we're actually going to hit the Smith Maneuver. How's it going today? Uh, it's going well. It's busy. I feel like it's just last week we were on the podcast together. So I appreciate you having me back. For sure. Yeah, no, in Calgary here, it's been just an insane market. And it's great to have you back on and put some time aside to talk to you again. And yeah, and to be on so soon too. I think it was probably, was it two, three weeks ago? Something like that. We jumped on a podcast. We were going to talk about one thing. And then we spent an hour on commercial financing and MLI. So it was kind of cool to just completely off the path of what we expected as for real sure. as it gets exactly for sure so what's keeping you busy how's the spring market are you just kind of like going crazy right now with transactions it's busy i would say the biggest shock is that we're seeing subject free offers in alberta we're seeing multiples in alberta investor clients of mine are getting like 150 plus applications or inquiries day one of listing properties for rent in alberta like so it seems like the wildfire that was BC and Ontario is starting to catch here. And we're seeing record levels of immigration to Alberta. And I think it's our time in the sun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As a realtor, for sure, I'm seeing the same thing. Subject free. It's almost like an auction environment at times. Uh, if there's, you know, three to four or five, maybe more people on that same property wanting it. The first thing that comes off the list is the conditions, it seems like. And then from there, the price starts to escalate. You know, and whoever basically has either wants it the most and has the deepest pockets seems to be the person that gets the property. No, certainly. It definitely helps to add the personal touches. Like uh, I was chatting with a realtor earlier and he puts together a 30 second video of the buyers. I think yeah. that that makes a huge difference. Asking for terms the seller wants helps like what closing dates. Using a single condition, if you do have conditions rather than seven conditions, like really it's the same thing. Can you kill the deal or not? but definitely a time to be practiced and well-polished when you're writing your offers and serious. 100%, yeah. And the other thing I noticed as a realtor is having that connection with the listing realtor. So building that rapport, connecting with them on a personal level before we even talk about the house. It's like, a, you know, how are you doing in this crazy market? And just kind of connecting with them and then continuing to follow up and make those touch points as we go through the transaction together. And they know that my buyers are really interested and also including like you're saying like a video or a letter is another great touch point for sure it's why i believe so strongly and you need to work with professionals that are capable but more importantly good people because if that stereotypical realtor in the lamborghini calls up with the offer and he calls you and cuts you off jumps right into it says yeah yeah we're writing you know 515 yeah whatever yeah bye you're not going to do a very good job of championing that to their clients, particularly if it's not the best offer. You're not going to go out of your way to help Johnny D win the offer when, you know, little old Susan, who's that realtor everybody loves, is, you know, baked you cookies and she's called you. You're going to fight for her deal, all things being equal. Yeah, 100%. I've had realtors on a listing recently that they just send an offer. They don't contact you. They don't phone. There's no text. It's just you just get something in your inbox. And it's so impersonal that it's, like, you know, the person that actually reached out and talked to me is the person I'm going to make an effort to reach out. And you talk use to. those anonymous offers to leverage those personable offers to get the best price on the personal offer and yeah. then go to your clients and get them to work with the people that are real people. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's exactly how it is. Uh, so you did mention, you know, someone posts a house that's for rent and they're getting like 150 people. Are you seeing that kind of in Edmonton? And I know you've got clients all over. Are you seeing it kind of throughout Alberta? Is there a hot spot that you're Calgary in like greater Calgary, greater Edmonton? Yes. Red Deer seems relatively hot, but you know, I don't want to pick a name, but Last Bridge, Grand Prairie, Fort McMurray. As you get more rural, it starts to fall off. We're finding it seems like there are a lot of families coming out here, whether to rent or to live, like to own. And I think it's really important that if you're a local in Alberta, that you realize things are changing. And maybe this is temporary. Maybe it's cyclical, like a lot of other things. Maybe this is a permanent change. My concern as a new local is one of those people causing the problem that moved here a year ago 
is that we're not in a boom of oil right now. Usually when Alberta is on fire doing well is oil's booming, but you know, oil's not terrible right now, but it's by no means just setting records. So my concern is that this might be a fundamental shift, that the affordability of Alberta is now become such an imbalance to BC and Ontario that this is just a permanent change. People are coming out. As that difference balances out, maybe it'll slow down a little bit. But I don't know if we're going to go back to the days of, you know, three months free rent to rent a property to lure a tenant in. And, you know, you could write a 21 business day conditional offer on buying a home and I just think at the end of the day, there's a division between the supply of housing in Canada and the demand for housing in Canada. And that gap is not going to diminish. Houses don't just appear and families don't just disappear. So we're at the imbalance where even in markets like Alberta as an example, which traditionally lag BC and Ontario, it's catching fire. And this imbalance has no relief valve other than people stop coming to Canada and we wait 10 years for people to pass away. They can only build houses so fast. There's a labor shortage. The cost of materials has gone through the roof. And whether it's to own or to rent, we're going to see more and more people fighting over less and less. And yeah, for sure. I'm very interested to see how it plays out. Yeah, we were looking at some new builds. I was yesterday had some clients here from Vancouver and we stopped and hit up some new builds and and they're 10 to 12 months out. They had a couple of leaseback options that you could buy, like a show home. They would lease it back from you for 18 months. You can't even move in the property. And actually, if you looked at the numbers, you would actually be at a negative cash flow by the time you paid for the property tax, the insurance. And they're like, hey, you could buy this property today, give us the cash for it and, and lose money for the next 18 months, but you're guaranteed to have a property. So, you know, somebody probably will sign up for that, but it's crazy what the bottleneck that's there. And then the other thing I've been hearing, because the cost of money is so expensive, a lot of these developers are actually scaling back. They can't scale up because of the delays and the cost and money is more expensive now. So they actually have to scale back and they're going to produce less homes, mm -hmm. you know, in the next 12 to 24 months. So roughly speaking, there was a CMHC study that came out June 2022, paraphrasing the numbers off memory. There's about 800 units of housing completed every day in Canada on average. They need to bring that number up to almost 2150. So they need to almost triple that number to reach the CMHC affordable housing goals, which are by no means affordable. We're talking getting BC and Ontario to about 44% of income to ownership. Like that's still using 60 to 70% of your net income just for your house. Like that's a lot because think you pay tax off that gross income. And this is all wild. Those 750, 800 units of housing a day, there's a 20-year low of construction workers relative to those 800 units. So somehow with a 20-year low of construction workers and people in those industries, we need to almost triple the amount of housing being built starting almost a year ago. And the longer it takes, the worse the problem gets. So I think it's an interesting dilemma and I don't have all the answers. I certainly think the government's going to need to strip back a lot of the red tape, a lot of the costs for developers but also force developers to pass those savings on to buyers instead of better margins. But I do think there's an interesting thing. You mentioned negative cash flow. And since this is a more investor-focused podcast, one of the things I want to quickly share is challenging the conventional wisdom that you will only ever buy positive cash flow real estate. While I think that that's a good general rule, in the scenario where you want to invest in very healthy markets with strong economic drivers, strong fundamentals, and you're getting a good property, I personally believe as an investor, you can go in and go, okay, it's going to cash flow $300 a month negative. That's fine. We can look at what will your mortgage be in five years. We can then recalculate if we re-amortize it over another 30 years. We can also make some assumptions. Maybe rates will be a little lower, but that's discretionary based on the investor due diligence. We can put you in a position where we can plan that your cash flow neutral or positive in, let's say, five years. And at the end of the day, imagine, Corey, you've got a client. They want a good long-term investment asset. They found the creme de la creme neighborhood in Calgary that is growing and emerging. You know, it's got new transit coming in. Pick all the strong fundamentals. Well, if it's $600,000 and you're going to put your $120,000 down payment in, well, what if that property was 620000 Would you consider buying it? I would argue that if all the fundamentals are strong enough, absolutely. Big picture, what's the difference? We're talking a trivial percentage. So what's the difference if you buy that $600,000 property that cash flows $3,600 a year negative, and you just budget over five years, that's 18000 you set it aside, and we're not banking on rents increasing, we're not banking on rates dropping, but rather just knowing in five years, we'll refinance, we'll stretch out your amortization, which will drop your payments. Now you'll have a cash flow neutral or positive AAA asset that is worth owning versus someone says, Corey, you know, I want one of those nice, what are they, you know, not a crack house, but, 
you know, those houses with seven units and, you know, they get a nice cash flow and I'm going to have my tenants leave every three and a half months and have police. And <laughs> I would argue that cash flow is a mistake in that scenario. And you'd be better off to buy that solid long-term fundamental asset. Yeah, that's a great answer. Because this one, actually, I, when I was driving after talking to them, I thought, you know, even though, let's say you, you were losing four to 500 a month for the next 18 months. So if it was on the high side, 500, that's what, 6,000 for a year, 9,000 in 18 months. But then the cost to build that same product and the delays is there. And then this property, it had a legal suite in the basement, two bedroom, nine foot ceilings, beautifully finished. Like this one would cash flow in a heartbeat once they're out of it. And it's got upgrades because it's a show home. So really, if they took that mindset you just spoke of, they would have a great product, double A product that would cash flow. And, you know, especially when they could get a basement renter in and rent up the upstairs as well. So I think maybe there are investors that will move on it for that reason, like as you're saying. Oh, 100%. I think it's just important as an investor, you continue to challenge the things you've been told and get yourself to the point where you have a fundamental understanding so that you can make critical decisions yourself where you evaluate the risks, the disadvantages, you figure out how you can mitigate those issues, and then you decide if they justify whatever the potential gains or positive is. Versus a lot of investors just, oh, burrs are the fad. Okay, everybody burrs. It must have $200 a month positive cash flow, and then they just go blindly burr. Instead, I think a better investor is going to look at what the market is, evaluate each opportunity on an individual basis, and then figure out which strategy applies best, whether it's dealing with the seller to give them better terms and using agreement for sale or creative strategies to get a better deal for you, but a better solution for the seller. Or it's considering burrs, flips, buy and hold development based on what is the opportunity, what is your skill set, and how do you optimize that deal? I think most newer investors make the mistake of they one trick ponies. They learn one or two things. That's all they do. And I think it is good to specialize in something. But at the end of the day, you should be objectively looking at each opportunity and figuring out the best way to move it. For sure. Yeah, 100%. Great start to the show. We got to shift gears here, though. We're not going to get into it. I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> okay. For our listeners that haven't heard of the Smith Maneuver, some of them probably have heard of it. Can you maybe just give us a 10,000 foot view of what a Smith Maneuver is? and uh, sure. how it can apply to maybe real estate investing. So I'm going to start with the problem that we all face. And that is for most of us, regular people, we've saved, we budgeted, we bought a home. We're now facing a dilemma. We have this big debt that is our mortgage. And we have this goal that we want to reach, which is retirement one day. When we look into retirement, we realize, shoot, I got to put money towards this. I have to put it in my TFSAs, RSPs, buy investments. But that's use one. We also have this conventional wisdom in Canada that we should pay off our debts because debts are bad. So we want to try to eliminate the mortgage as quickly as possible. And the problem is that requires choosing one or the other. So we'll go down the path. We pay off our mortgage really quickly. Great. We're super diligent. We pay off our mortgage in 13 years, which is record setting. Most people will not do that. Awesome. We've now starved our retirement savings for 13 years. We've lost the benefit of compounding our investments for those 13 years. And we've ultimately will end up in a position where a lot of our equity or net worth will be tied up in our home, which we need to live when we're retired. We'll have minimal retirement savings and we'll be likely in a position where next thing you know, we're 68. We no longer qualify for a mortgage to access the equity in this home worth a million bucks or whatever it is. And now we're Googling chip reverse mortgages at 9% interest. And now we're going to borrow back all that hard work in our years where debt is the worst and risk should be managed we're now gonna take on high interest debt with massive penalties because we did things out of order. The flip side is you can leave your mortgage and you can let it run. You can save as aggressively for investment as possible, but let's be honest, mortgages are very expensive. A $500,000 mortgage at these interest rates costs almost $460,000 of interest at 5% over 30 years. Rough numbers, they may be off by a couple thousand, but they're close. If you think on top of that, you need to pay the $500,000 of debt you owe. You need to pay the $460,000 roughly of interest over that time. But you also have to earn that money, which means you have to pay tax on all that. So if you factor in that household probably makes one hundred twenty dollars to 150000 a year, they need to earn almost $2 million to pay off their mortgage. So it's extremely expensive to just let that debt exist. Now, the Smith Maneuver, what is it? It's the solution. It's the in-between. It's the understanding the way the tax rules work in Canada and applying them effectively so you can optimize your situation. And what that means is instead of paying off your mortgage, you try to make it as cheap as possible. And you do this by paying down non-tax deductible debt on your home 
and reborrowing in a tax deductible way. So you can write off the interest and you invest it for 30 years in the future. So you get the benefit of lowering the cost of your mortgage by making it tax deductible, but you also get the benefit of getting more money invested for your future sooner. And I think the best way to visualize how powerful this is, and once again, I'm paraphrasing numbers, but the whole, you can get a million dollars or you can have a penny that doubles every day for 31 days. And paraphrase, that penny that doubles every single day will be worth roughly, I think, seven and a half million dollars after 31 days of doubling. And if you miss the last three days, I think it's day 28, it's under a million dollars. So missing those extra years of compounding are massive. And if we can save for retirement 13 years sooner while reducing the cost of our debt, we can make the difference of millions of dollars in our retirement, which means we can help charity. We can take care of our kids. We can buy that vacation home. We can travel our retired years. And I believe that the Smith Maneuver is not the right solution for every Canadian, but it is a great solution for many. Awesome start. The numbers you use, I know that $500,000 mortgage and you pay, say, $460,000 in interest, 30-year amortization. I think a lot of people kind of have that rough number in their head, especially risk-averse people, and they know that that's where they put the focus is every dollar I put on my mortgage sooner is a dollar I save in the future. And that's, you know, the risk-averse type people, that's the, the philosophy, right? The more I can pay now, the less I pay later. And that's why, you know, they will pursue that. And I definitely pursued that time in my life too. Instead of trying to leverage, I was just looking to get rid of all debt, basically, right? So with the Smith Maneuver, how did it come about? Like, if you give a little bit of a backstory. Sure. So I didn't invent the strategy. I didn't write the books. I'm a Smith Maneuver certified mortgage broker. I've worked with the strategy for about eight years. And about four years in, I met a guy named Robinson Smith. And he was actually presenting on stage for a real estate investing group I knew. And he had another mortgage broker with him. And I got very upset very quickly. But I listened to what he said. And I had kind of a holy cow moment. There's more to this than the more basic implementation. So I connected with him. Turns out. He's the author of Master Your Mortgage for Financial Freedom, which is the second Smith Maneuver book. So Robinson's a financial planner. He sold his practice a couple of years ago. But his father, Fraser Smith, actually wrote a book in the early 2000s. And the examples in the book use 7% interest rates, just to give you an idea of when this strategy was created, what the world was like. 7% interest. But he wrote a book called Is Your Mortgage Tax Deductible to Smith Maneuver? So I mix up the titles. And it was written in the early 2000s, and it outlines the strategy. About 10 years before that, as a planner and an advisor, he was advising his clients on the strategy, actually using a local credit union in BC. And it has evolved over time as the products have evolved, multiple books have been written and it's become more popular. The strategy has grown and kind of expanded. And I think the need for it has also increased. I don't want to say anything about generations in a bad way, but I personally believe that people that worked in the 80s had a better future than people who work today. And I'll use an example. My dad worked at Overweighty when I was a little, little kid. He was a grocery manager. And by that, I mean, he put vegetables at night on the stands. He made $27.50 an hour, plus benefits, plus a pension. And this was in the early 90s. I don't know many people who put, you know, fruit and vegetables on the stands that get 20 bucks an hour these days. So let alone a pension and benefits and all that stuff. So I think it's important that we start doing things differently than our parents did, because otherwise we're going to have a very, very different outcome. That was a great answer. And what kind of caught me was your example about your dad, right? And that's so true. And then the other thing about that is I used to work at Overweighty when I was fishing in high school and I was a bag boy, they would call it, right? And we would help people out with the groceries and stuff. And I haven't heard of Overweighty in a lot of years, but being in, now in Alberta, right? But yeah, that's so true. And then we know that like places like Walmart and stuff, they will purposely restrict people's hours so they don't get benefits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's say someone does the Smith maneuver and then, you know, they get their taxes, they're going to be audited. How does the CRA feel about someone doing something like this? So the first thing I want to clarify is just because you do the Smith maneuver doesn't mean you will be audited, but the longer you do it and the larger the tax deductions you create are, the more likely you will be audited. The important thing is that you do it correctly, which typically means having bare minimum a chartered professional accountant involved who's going to make sure that you know you do things exactly right. At the end of the day, the CRA is not out to get anyone, but it is black and white in the eyes of the CRA. And if there is a reason, a technicality they can use to make you pay $50,000 more in taxes, they will use it. It is their job to get every dollar they can. Whereas if you follow the rules and the laws and the tax code perfectly, it is your right as a Canadian to 
minimize your taxes as much as you're allowed to do it. There's nothing wrong with it. So in the first book, in the early 2000s, there's actually a side in the first couple chapters that mentions the CRA was rumbling back then about overturning the ability to write off interest on debt that's used with the reasonable expectation of earning income. That's kind of the criteria. When you invest, if you have the reasonable expectation of earning income, you can write off the interest. And there's little rules to it, but that's the general gist. At the end of the day, I don't think they like or dislike the strategy. At the end of the day, it fits within the tax code. It's been around for over 30 years. They've never overturned it. There's professionals all over Canada, financial planners, mortgage brokers, lawyers, and accountants that all help clients set it up. It's not a scheme to pay less tax. It is simply optimizing your finances, flowing funds as efficiently and effectively as possible to maximize tax deductions, minimize your interest cost, and to maximize the growth of your investments by getting more money invested sooner. So there's nothing for them to really like or dislike. But I think the critical thing for Canadians is to make sure that if you implement the strategy that you don't John Wayne it and just read a couple things online, watch a YouTube video, find a guy, but rather you do it correctly because it takes 15 to 20 minutes to do a month. It's not time consuming, but it needs to be done correctly. Like anything, like a surgery, like filing your taxes, applying for a mortgage. If you do it wrong, bad things happen. And I think the best thing that Canadians can do if they do implement the strategy, other than having the right professionals, is keep things as simple as possible. I suggest that if you can get 90 to 95% of the benefit in 10% of the time, do it that way. Don't go chasing dollars and adding hours to each month to try to do it slightly better. But the critical thing is that there's a few documents you need to keep, and I'll go through those with you if you like. And there's a few steps you need to take consistently. So what's going to happen is the first thing you do is you just pay your mortgage. That's normal. Everybody has to pay their mortgage. You need the right type of mortgage product called a readvanceable mortgage that as you pay off the debt on your mortgage, it has a home equity line of credit that has the limit increase as the mortgage is reduced. So first thing we do is we make that mortgage payment, which automatically causes our home equity line of credit to have more room. We then take the money available on that home equity line of credit each month and we move it into a special account. It's a normal checking account, but it's only used for two things. We move the money off the HELOC or home equity line of credit into this special checking account. Then we take a portion of that money and pay it right back to the HELOC to cover the interest for the last 30 days. We now have a little bit of money left over, whatever it may be. We invest it for our future. We invest it into real estate, into a business. We put it into our corporation to grow our business. We can private lend it. We can put it in the stock market. As long as we have the reasonable expectation of earning income, I don't know why I keep stumbling over that, we can generally speaking write off the interest. Now, that's a really simple little closed loop. Now, those investments provide certain returns. We take those returns. We do not pay the tax deductible interest. Instead, we take those returns and pay down that non-tax deductible debt, which creates even more room in our HELOC. We transfer the money off the HELOC into that special account. We pay the interest owing on the HELOC. Then we invest the difference. We then, at the end of the year, get to write off all the interest on that HELOC, which generally speaking will reduce our tax bill, which means we get a refund from the CRA. We take that refund. We pay down the non-tax deductible mortgage on our home, which creates even more room on the HELOC. We transfer it to that special account. We pay any interest owing, and then we invest it. And we just repeat this cycle. And in anywhere from four to 24 years, our mortgage is fully tax deductible, depending on how you do it. I'd say the average client will make their mortgage fully tax deductible in roughly 12 to 15 years. We still have the debt, but imagine in 15 years, Corey, you've got your $500,000 mortgage still, but now you get to write off all of the interest on it and you've invested over those 15 years, $500,000, which is growing at the same average of 8%. Odds are 15 years from now, it's maybe worth six, seven, 800,000. I don't know. It depends on your investments and what you do, but 15 years later, you've still got the $500,000 of debt. Now that money you've invested is maybe worth $1.5 million. Well, who cares about $500,000 of debt that's a tax write-off if you've got $1.5 million of investments? Five years later, now it's worth $2 million. You know, you've now got enough money that you're going into your retired years. And there's different ways to wind down the strategy, but maybe you're screw it. You've got enough money and a pension and you did things right. You feel good. Who cares about $500,000 of debt? Your net worth four and a half million bucks. Your investments cover the cost of that debt, right? So by the time you die, you're 92, you're swinging the golf clubs and you're, it's your time and your time comes. 
you've run the strategy and just let it run. It's been 45 years or whatever it may be. You still got that $500,000 of debt. Yes, your estate's going to pay it out. But now you've got $5 million of investments. Great. Your kids are now, you know, maybe they're not set, but they're way better off than if you've never explored the strategy. Yeah. So that's the upside. The big thing is making sure you manage the downsides. And likely with the history, you know, predicts the future, that home is probably tripled in value or quadrupled over those years as well. It's um, important to know the Smith maneuver is a strategy to minimize taxes and to grow your net worth. It doesn't provide cash flow tomorrow. It doesn't improve your life two years from now. It is a way that you can make small changes to improve your future. And the best part, you'll notice that when I went through that very first simple example, the only thing ever paying the interest on the home equity line of credit is the home equity line of credit. So the only outside money you need is pay your mortgage payment. So you can implement the strategy and improve your future with no new money. And that's the beautiful part of it. Now, personally, like I do this myself, I put extra money to speed this up because my goal is to try to build as strong and as good of a future for my kids as possible. But you get the choice and you can do these extra steps to build a better retirement without coming up with an extra thousand dollars a month. Because I think we both know it's hard and things are expensive right now. And I don't want to swear, paying your mortgage payment is already hard enough. So it's important that you're financially stable and you can do this long term, but it is a way for you to build a better retirement without sacrificing your kids going to dance class, your son going to football, helping your kids with their education or buying their first car. Just got to make your mortgage payment and the rest takes care of itself. Yeah, it's amazing. So now we may have some listeners kind of either, you know, just driving whatever they're doing right now. And they might be saying, hey, when I got my mortgage, I got a HELOC. I'm just going to go get a checkings account and I'm going to start this loop that Keaton just mentioned. Can you speak to some risks and how that may not work out for them? Do not do that. This strategy involves investing, which statistically most people suck at. Even most professionals suck at. Like something like 60 something percent of professional fund advisors don't outperform the market. So it's important that you don't just go do this because as an example, you have your investment HELOC, your home equity line of credit. An emergency comes up, you borrow $7,000 to pay for a personal expense. Theoretically, the CRA can use that non-tax deductible borrowing mixed in with your tax deductible borrowing to overturn all of your tax deductions. You can ruin your life with this strategy by making poor investment choices, by being sloppy, or theoretically, because I do want to be fair, if you're just really, really unlucky, maybe you start the strategy tomorrow, you do everything right, and we go into a 25-year window where the stock market just crumbles. Maybe interest rates go to 30%. Now, personally, I live with this risk because my attitude is if that level of thing happens, owning a home is going to be whatever. Like we're dealing with anarchy in the streets. Retirement is a myth at that point. So personally, I eliminate the worst case scenarios. But at the end of the day, if this is something you're interested in, you need to make sure you can have the right product with the right lender that's set up incorrectly and it won't work correctly. Some lenders, when you pay down your mortgage, it takes 30 to 60 days for it to become available in your home equity line of credit. So there's things you need to know to make sure this works well. And that's where the professionals come in. For sure. And now you mentioned about stopping and unwinding. So let's say we have some people that are maybe somewhat risk averse and they're looking to get a new mortgage and you set them up on the readvanceable. Is this something that they could maybe just decide, okay, I'll do 50, maybe $100,000 worth of investments put that you know, somewhere they feel it's going to grow and then just stop and just basically allow that HELOC to grow and just keep paying down on principle and just kind of, is that something that they could do? No, absolutely. So it's important to know that the Smith Maneuver is ultimately, it is an application, like a way of doing things built around certain financial concepts and tax rules. Ultimately, you can adapt the strategy and those concepts to fit your goals best. And that's where the professionals come in. I don't want to harp on this, but what's best for Corey is not necessarily what's best for me. What's best for me is not necessarily what's best for you. So it's important that the way it's set up is ultimately to get to your goals and to stay within your risk tolerances. But I have some clients that for every $3 they pay down on their mortgage, they only reborrow and invest $1. So they're still paying off all their debt. I have other clients like myself where my goal is to fully pay down and reborrow my mortgage to reinvest. The moment I've done that, I'm locking in my mortgage. So it's amortized and now it's fully tax deductible. I've created my mortgage about $540,000 personally. I've created $540,000 of investments. I've made the $540,000 of debt I have tax deductible. 
Once that's achieved, which should roughly take about eight years in my situation with a rental property, I am then going to pay off that $540,000 in tax deductible debt. I am not going to let it run forever. But there's different ways to apply it for different people. I just don't like the idea of debt forever. My goal is to get myself in a position where I'll have enough for my family. The moment I know confidently that regardless of how well the market does, I'm there, I'm switching strictly to risk management. I'm going to take the risks while I'm young. I'm going to try to manage them. But the moment I've got enough momentum, I'm going to start turning that risk dial down as quick as I can. Better to have it and keep it than build it and lose it. So For sure. Because you can have a home equity line of credit on your mortgage, but it may not be re-advanceable. Is that right? So could you just kind of explain and define what a re-advanceable mortgage is and how it's different? So typically speaking, at the fundamental level, it's what's called a collateral charge mortgage. So this is a certain way that lenders register the debt on the title of your property. It's like a blanket. They register more on the title of your property than you owe. So they can increase the overall debt you have. They can have multiple mortgages and multiple lines of credit on your property, and it's all secured under this blanket charge. That's at the kind of legal level. At the practical level, think of it like a container. And inside that container is multiple layers. There are mortgage components and there are line of credit components. They are all linked. So together, they can only add up to 80% of the value of your property. And as one layer shrinks the mortgage, as a result, A plus B equals C. So mortgage plus line of credit equals 80% loan to value. So as your mortgage drops down and you pay it down, your mortgage plus your line of credit will always equal 80% of what your property was worth when you bought it, if it's set up correctly. So another way to explain that is as you pay down your mortgage, you have a line of credit that has this limit grow. And the best part is if you don't use it, the line of credit costs you nothing. It is simply access to money. If you use it, they charge you interest. If you don't use it, they don't. So these products are actually really good. Even if you don't do the Smith maneuver, these readvanceable products are useful as a safety net, as a way if you need a roof, you're never going to get a second mortgage. You've got access to, you know, $32,000 at six and a half or seven percent, whatever it is at today's interest rates, hopefully lower long term. Well, awesome. You'll never be in the situation where you get caught out of the blue and you, you know, you need to fix your roof and now it's on a credit card. You put it on the line of credit. So there's different ways you can use these products. But I think it solves one really important dilemma. And I'm sure you've been through it, Corey. I know I have. You get $5,000. Maybe it's your tax return. And then you're like, oh, well, I really want to invest it because I know that's good for my future. But I've also got this debt. So do I pay down the debt? Maybe. And then you flip-flop between do you invest, do you pay down the debt? Or maybe you know that you have an investment property and you're going to need $5,000 to fix the hot water tank and the furnace in eight months. So what do you do over the next eight months? Do you just leave it as cash and it loses to inflation? You keep paying your mortgage? Well, a readvanceable product lets you pay down that debt, owe less for eight months, and then reborrow, fix the furnace and the hot water tank on your rental property. Now it's tax deductible debt because it was for your rental. And during those eight months, it earned a return for you. It avoided the interest cost on your mortgage. So it just it opens up a degree of flexibility so that you can be better off financially and have more options. For sure. That kind of leads into my next question. Now, is this something you would set up more on your primary residence? Or let's say you're a real estate investor and you're looking at maybe buying a rental property and maybe their current mortgage is locked in on their primary residence. Could they just set this up on their new rental property? There's two answers to that question. The Smith maneuver, the debt conversion strategy where you eliminate debt, you reborrow and you invest it in a tax deductible way. You can do that on your primary residence and a second home, like a vacation property. The key is the debt is non-tax deductible on those properties. It would never make sense to have a mortgage on your rental property, which is already tax deductible because it was used for an income producing asset, the rental. It would never make sense to pay off that tax deductible debt and then reborrow it to go invest it. Why would you accelerate that? It's already tax deductible. The only situation that would make sense is if your home equity line of credit is cheaper than your mortgage then maybe. But the readvanceable product, absolutely can you put them on rentals. All my rental properties have them. I think they're brilliant because I don't use them to invest. I use them as another safety net. So if the tenants move out, I have a bad tenant, I have to put repairs, fix up the property. I've got a slush fund that was created by my tenants paying down my mortgage. And now I've got access to 10, 15, $30,000 that if that property has any expenses, that's business debt or it's debt for the purpose of earning income, or I should say the expenses are associated with an investment property. So when I borrow to pay them, it's tax deductible and it's all contained on my rental property. 
So I don't have to go raid my piggy bank to go pay for the new roof on the rental property or to deal with the tenant issue. The property covers itself. And I'm a big believer that real estate investors need to treat real estate investing like a business. And that means seriously considering risks and taking active steps to mitigate those risks as much as possible, which means redundancy. I like to have contingencies for my rental properties, and I like to have these readvanceable lines of credit as a secondary way to protect myself. I like that strategy and that concept, and actually uh, just you you know, sharing that, because our listeners, some of them maybe aren't cash flowing, maybe some of them are negative cash flow, and, it's like, and if they do have a you know some sort of capital expense that was unforeseen come up, I mean, at least like you're saying, you have that kind of built in to the plan anyway, even without a great cash flow. One of the tricks I'll share with real estate investors, you have to be careful with this because this is playing with fire, but you can use your re-advancing mortgages on your rentals to turn your payment from an amortized interest and principal payment to effectively an interest only payment. Because if you borrow on your home equity line of credit to pay your mortgage payment, that's going to pay interest on a mortgage. And then let's say it pays down $300 of debt. Well, now that $300 becomes available on your line of credit, and then you can repeat the process, essentially making interest-only payments. Now, this is a Band-Aid. You cannot do this long-term, but if you hit a real rough patch, you can potentially use it as a way to survive because you can cut your expenses 20 or 30%. So it's a last ditch. It's not a good thing, but it is sometimes the best of a series of bad options. And I'm a believer as an investor. I want to have as much flexibility as possible so that when life throws whatever it throws at me, I have the most tools available to try to figure out what is the best solution for me. For sure. Would you say there's a bit of a mindset shift? It sounds like maybe you went through one at first yourself personally. With this strategy to implement it, start doing it, is there a bit of a shift that's required? 100%. There's different degrees of it, but ultimately you're accepting you're going to keep your debt. And instead of paying it off, you're going to convert it from being non-tax deductible to tax deductible. And you're accepting the concept that if that interest costs you, let's say 5%, and the S&P 500 is an example, averages 9.8, you are making a spread in a couple different ways. One, that 5% interest is tax deductible, so you get to write that off. Two, let's say that your investments average 9.8%, let's say for the S&P 500. Now, I'm making up very rough numbers, but you can look up the average. It's depending on the version you look at. It ranges from 9 to 11% based on the, the date range. Of that, let's say 10% for round numbers a year you earn, maybe 2% is in the form of dividends. So that's income that you get every year that you're going to pay tax on, but you pay roughly 60% of the tax on a dividend as you would on interest income, as an example. So I'll give an example. If you earn $10,000 of dividends for an $80,000 a year earner, you'll pay roughly $750 of tax. If that same individual earns I believe it's $10,000 of income as interest income, you pay $2,050. So the point is there's different tax rules for different types of income. So you pay 5% interest, it's fully tax deductible, you earn a 2% dividend that is at a more efficient tax rate, so you benefit a little bit there. The other 8% you earned is growth in the share price, which is a capital gain. When you finally sell, it's at half the tax rate that your interest income's at, but more importantly, you don't pay it till you sell. So you can push that tax event 25 years in the future and have that growth compounding before taxes. So absolutely, it's a headspace shift. And some of the things I've said might be slightly wrong as I'm diving into tax rules, investment income. I'm a mortgage broker. I can provide the debt planning and I'm very passionate about this. I learned this for myself. But you should not take what I've said about all these little rules as gospel, but rather you should take this as a, huh, it's complicated. I need a mortgage broker, I need a financial planner, and I need an accountant to navigate this strategy correctly. And more importantly, I need those three professionals to actually understand the strategy. And the best way to figure out they understand the strategy is one of two things. The plug for Robinson Smith is he has a Smith Maneuver Certified Professionals Program. You can look up the Smith Maneuver. You'll find, I believe it's smithman.net, but he might've changed the website. He updated it recently, but find Robinson Smith's website. Let me just Google it because this is going to bug me if I don't give the right one. But you go on that website, you send Robinson a message. You say, hey, Robinson, can you introduce me to people that are certified in the Smith Maneuver? And he'll connect you with everybody you need. Smithmaneuver.com is the new website. And that's option one. Option two, you don't reach out to Robinson. When you reach out to professionals, you ask them open-ended questions. So as an example, 
Corey, if I want to work with you as a realtor and I'm an investor, I'm not going to say, Corey, do you work with real estate investors? Because of course, you're going to say yes. Most will. Instead, I'm going to say, hey, Corey, when your clients are looking to a burst strategy, what neighborhoods do you target and what types of properties? If you work with investors, you can answer or clarify. For sure. If you're John, the brand new realtor who says he works with investors, but doesn't know anything, <laughs> he's going to be like, what's the burr again? I know that one, but just remind me. Yeah, yeah. That's so great. ask your professionals, hey, when you're implementing the Smith Manure, what risk do you look for? How do you optimize it? But just ask an open-ended question. That's a great example too, as well. So then earlier on, actually, so you'd mentioned the certified. So you are certified. There's a course. And then do they do a test? How do they yeah, There's a they big, ugly test that's like 130,000 word document that is all the materials. You get the book. You got to read through. And then at the end of the day, Robinson's test is designed to assess, do you understand all the legalities and the fundamental aspects of the strategy, how the taxes work with a heavy emphasis on, hey, you need to understand how this stuff works as a professional, but you also need to know what your lane is and stay within it. Once you're certified, then you get connected with all the other professionals. There's a community and a group. And once again, there's a few hundred of us across Canada. This is not like a cult of thousands of people. There's accountants, financial planners, lawyers, realtors, mortgage brokers, insurance professionals. And I will say that there's Smith Maneuver certified professionals, but like anything, there's a range. There's people that are really, really good realtors, as an example in the program, and there's people that are probably not as good. So it's important that you find the right ones. And Robinson is very strict on if someone's not doing things ethically or correctly, you're gone, you're done, you're excommunicated. Like his number one goal is protecting Canadians. And that's why he came up with the program. Because there were a lot of people that were saying they were experts in the strategy that were not. And if you do it incorrectly or improperly, or you just don't worry about the risks and do things in an effective way, you can get yourself in trouble, real trouble. And long story short, the professionals not only know the strategy and how it all works, but they also know how to work together. I can't give tax advice. So I need to work with you and your accountant who also understands the strategy to figure out what is the best compromise to balance taxes and lending. The financial planner needs to figure out what is the best compromise to maximize investment goals, tax refunds, but also do it in a way that makes sure that it's compliant with the strategy, that the accountant is happy from a tax perspective, the broker's happy from a lending perspective. So it's important to know that it's not about the best tax advice, the best investment advice, the best mortgage advice, but the best compromise that minimizes your risks, protects you from the CRA, and puts you in a position for good long-term success and ideally makes your life as easy as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. I do have a few other questions, but you mentioned that some docs were required, you know, a little bit of bookkeeping, that kind of thing. Could you just maybe just quickly touch on what that looks like for you yourself each month? For sure. So first thing I do is I set up like a Google Drive, a Dropbox, some sort of online document. Way. And then every month I get my home equity line of credit statement that I use for investing. I download that statement every month. So next thing I do is I download the statement for the Smith Maneuver checking account, we call it. But this is the account where the money goes from the line of credit to the Smith Maneuver checking account. A portion goes to pay the interest on the home equity line of credit. The rest gets invested. So I take the home equity line of credit statement each month. I take that checking account statement. The last thing I do is I take my investment account statement because the money goes from that checking account to my investment account. So it's three documents a month that I save. And one of the things you need to know is that the CRA can audit you up to seven years back. But when you have a series like the Smith Maneuver, which is a snowballing, hypothetically, I do the strategy 20 years from now, they could go back to today because they're following decisions I made that are impacting my tax situation 20 years from now. So it's critical that you keep all of your documents. So I keep a paper copy, I keep a thumb drive copy, and I keep a cloud copy. Redundancy. It's all investing. We want to manage risk. Hard drives can break, digital servers can get deleted, you can have a fire or a flood and lose paper documents. By doing all three, I'm as safe as I reasonably can be. And one of the things you're probably wondering, Corey, is wow, how long does this take? It takes me about 13 minutes a month, not time consuming. Yeah, for sure. Just having that system in place and then sticking to it and doing it each month. Yeah. It's literally make my mortgage payment, make a transfer, transfer back, make a final transfer to the investment account. And then I actually use a professional investment advisor, a planner, and he takes the money. And then his goal and my perspective of the planner is not for him to make the best returns because anyone who knows investing knows that's not in a planner's control, but rather to maximize my estate planning and my tax efficiency and to make sure that my investments are diversified enough to balance out risk. And I consider things like exempt market dealer funds in farmland in Saskatchewan. 
I invest in the stock market through indexes. I invest in real estate. I invest in my own business. And I think that that multi-tiered approach is how you be more successful with the strategy. Because if the stock market completely blows up, it's going to suck and it's going to be a scary day. But I have enough other pillars of investing that I'll probably be okay. I was the just going to ask. Link you... I have is Canadian dollars. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask because you did mention it there, and I think in that group, you said reinvesting into your own business. So I'm a listener. Maybe I have a small business. Maybe self-employed. That kind of thing. I set this up. I can invest money dollars into my own business. Is that yes. correct? My favorite accountant that I work with for the strategy, he's in his early 40s. He just finished making his mortgage fully taxed. It took him about 12 years, I think. I don't know if it was his only, but his primary method of investing was buying essentially accounting firms. He's an accountant. He knows that world really well. I would argue that he can gauge that risk pretty damn well compared to a regular person guessing at the stock market. And he bought books of business as all he, as far as I know, invested in. So he just grew his business. No stock market, no real estate, you know, none of that weird volatile stuff. He just did what he knew. I think a lot of people listening probably will be thinking, damn, you know, I'm locked in and I wish I, when I set up my mortgage, I would have looked into this and maybe they have a renewal coming up, that kind of thing. But that would probably be the time to do it, right? If you're locked in on a low interest rate right now for the next, say, three to four years, you're probably just going to hold tight. Is that right? It depends. There has been a handful of situations where it has made sense to pay a penalty, move to higher interest rate. But usually when someone has a lot of non-registered investments and in one move, we could make the mortgage fully tax deductible. It's called a debt swap. I won't get into the ins and outs. If someone wants to learn about it, you can reach out or I'll do a video on it and send it to you. But 99% of the time, it does not make sense to break a 2% mortgage, go to a 5% rate and start the strategy. Why would you? You're going to pay a penalty and a higher rate. But there's a trick where with certain lenders, we can actually port your mortgage at 2% to that same lender. You pay legal fees and an appraisal. They redo the charge on title to the collateral charge. Now you have the right product with your sexy 2% rate and you can begin the strategy. The important thing to remember, because a lot of people get hung up on this, a home equity line of credit today is going to cost 6.7 to 7.2%. And then a lot of people go, holy shit, you know, I've got a 2%, a 5% mortgage, whatever. Why would I ever pay that down to borrow at 7%? And there's a couple of things you need to accept. So first of all, if you've got a rate below market rates, you got to remember it's going to renew at some point. And when it renews, you go to current rates. It's inevitable. So you got to think long-term. Number two, that 7.2 or 6.7%, whatever it may be, is tax deductible. So at a 50% tax bracket, as an example, your 5% interest actually costs you 7.5% because you've got to pay tax on that money. Whereas that 6.7 or 7.2, you get to write off that interest. So it lowers the cost of it, essentially. The last thing is that earlier on, I mentioned that these products with the right lenders allow multiple mortgages and lines of credit. One of the things that we'll do is after two, three years, you'll owe a couple hundred thousand dollars in this HELOC, whatever it may be. We'll lock it back into, let's say, a closed variable mortgage. Now you're apples to apples. The interest cost on your non-tax deductible mortgage will be very similar, if not identical, long-term to the interest cost on your tax-deductible mortgage. Now you get all the benefits of the tax deductibility with no extra cost. But this is where it's important. You don't just do step one or two, but you know all of the steps because they're the difference of optimizing the strategy, lowering your risk long-term, and just making sure it's going to be a win for you. For sure. I'll just quickly mention it, but I think what we're going to have to do, Keaton, so this is going to be part one of the Smith Maneuver, and we're going to have you back for part two. On part two, we'll jump into the accelerators because we certainly absolutely. don't have the time today to go into. I think one of these days we should absolutely do as a podcast, but we should also record it visually. And I'll bring some visual aids to show how the money flows, how it works, the numbers, because I think it's a really important piece of understanding. But for everybody is just like, holy cow, I don't get this. My average client spends two to six months learning the strategy. Now, that's because I put a lot of emphasis of you really understand what you're getting into. At the end of the day, implementing it takes 20 minutes, takes a couple of professionals. So I like to use the analogy of driving a car. My goal is my clients understand how the transmission in a car works, how the engine works. You know the actual operation of the vehicle. But ultimately, implementing the Smith Maneuver is kind of like getting in the car, turning on the key, driving down the road. You got to know the rules of the road. Don't speed. You know, Don't cut people off. Put gas in your vehicle, take it to a mechanic twice a year, and redo the insurance once a year. So it's important to know there's the academic understanding of making an informed decision of if the strategy is right for you. And then there's the actual doing, which is very, very simple. 
And my advice earlier, you mentioned if you're mid-mortgage, I would suggest that if this sounds like it's in the right direction for you, the sooner you start learning about it, the better. I didn't write the book. It's not my book. But if you send me a message, I will mail you a physical copy of it. I've still got a, some copies left. So if I run out, you're out of luck. But if you reach out to Corey, you reach out to me and you ask, I'll get you a physical copy of the book and just start letting it digest because it is a paradigm shift. It is a very different approach to debt and our finances and our future than what our parents did. The problem is you look at the retirement statistics, what our parents did barely worked for most of our parents. It's certainly not going to work for us today. For sure. Yep. Well, thank you so much for being on the show for part one. And uh, now we're going to have to schedule part two. We'll have to just see where our calendars align and What's the best way? I know we, we mentioned it before, but if you could just mention again, best way for listeners that get in touch with you. Best way to find me, if you just Google me, you'll find me. I've got YouTube, Facebook, all that fun stuff. www.kbmortgages.ca is our website. Otherwise, you can reach me at keaton at kbmortgages with an S.ca. And that's K is in Kirkwood, B is in Brennan. Thanks, Keaton. Enjoy the beautiful weather Alberta's being blessed with right now. Loving it. Heat warnings in May. What is going on? <laughs> For sure. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician, and I hold a Master Home Inspection Certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587 893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at Peckford Corey, or my website is CoreyPeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short. Please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.